what very important way of thinking about our power in building products is to realize that our role as a product person is very much like that of a doctor. What happens when a doctor prescribes medicine is a doctor says, I see you, the patient, sick with something, and here is a medicine I'm going to prescribe for you, uh, and that will make you better. You're, you have some sickness, right? It's a problem that you have, and I am prescribing my product to you to make that better. And so we can't then now say, well, how you use that product, if you use it for good or bad, that's your problem. And if my product is causing bad in the world, that's not my issue. We cannot say that, right? We have to look at the Hippocratic Oath of product and say, I shouldn't be doing harm to society through my product. Welcome to the Product People podcast, where we learn from amazing product leaders about product management, growth, and product talks. I'm today's host, Mira Lamus, founder and CPO at Product People. Today's guest is Radhika Dutt, author of Radical Product Thinking. She served as advisor to the Monetary Authority of Singapore and chief product officer at Move Price. This is the second part of the episode with our guest. If you haven't listened to the first part of the episode, be sure to do so. Do you have a concrete example where you've applied radical product thinking in your work and real life scenarios so people could imagine how they can take into their companies? Yeah, I'll give one example of, you know, how we applied radical product thinking and how big a difference it made. But there's a separate question there about, you know, how can people bring it into their companies? And I'll talk about that uh, as a second question. So the first question in terms of applying this, I'll give you the example of this startup where, you know, they had been building a product. The startup was called Mac and they were building a product that was inspired by the suspended coffee movement. And the suspended coffee movement, if you're not familiar with it, was started in Naples about 100 years ago, where the idea is, you know, you pay for two coffees, one of which you consume, the second is paid forward for someone who could use a random act of kindness. So Paul, the entrepreneur, was telling me about Knack, where he wanted to spread kindness in the world, and he had created an app so that people could pay it forward and buy some cup of coffee. And so, you know, Paul was sharing with me his numbers, right? And his numbers looked fantastic. He had organic growth, which is kind of like the nirvana of what we seek in product management. He had a high number of daily average users, you know, lots of time spent on the app every single day. I mean, his numbers looked fantastic, except I will say that he had hypermetricemia, that product disease where we're obsessed with metrics, but he wasn't measuring one metric, which was the most important, which was how many people are actually spending their own money to buy someone a coffee. It actually turned out that everyone was coming to this app to find a free coffee. No one was actually buying anyone a coffee. And so when I looked at this, we said, okay, we need to come up with a vision that thinks about this, this product as a mechanism for creating change. So if the change we want to create is to bring kindness to the world, then the mechanism is this product. And so the vision for the product we wrote out as you know, for those people who are coffee drinkers and often go to coffee shops today, it's very awkward to buy someone a coffee because it's, you know, you feel strange about it. Right. And so this is therefore not a habit to buy someone a coffee or do this random act of kindness. And we want to create an app that makes it a habit to do these random acts of kindness. And that's what this app is doing. So 
that was the fill in the blank statement roughly. And by the way, if you want the actual fill in the blank statement, you can get it from the Radical Product Thinking website. There's a whole toolkit where you have access to this. But so we wrote this vision and then we came up with a strategy. So we said, okay, what's the real pain that makes someone come to this product? So right now the pain is people like the idea of getting a free coffee, but the reason they don't buy someone a coffee is because I've never spent my money to buy someone a coffee. I've never tried this, so I don't know what it feels like. And so it's too much of a risk to spend my money and buy someone a coffee. So the solution, the design was that we had to get someone used to buying someone a coffee without actually making them pay for it first. So by the way, in the radical product thinking way, what I'm just starting to describe is the RDCL strategy. The R was the real pain points, D was design, C is capabilities. So, you know, in terms of capabilities, it means what's the underlying engine to be able to deliver this design? So imagine, you know, everyone is learning how to give to coffee without ever paying for it. I mean, we don't have infinite funding. So what's the underlying engine that's going to make that design come alive? So Paul went and created partnerships with brands who would sponsor free coffees and get behind this message of uh, spreading kindness. And then the last, the L was logistics out of this RDCL. So logistics means thinking about your business model, what's your marketing plan, your support strategy, et cetera. And so I'll just give you one example of L, which was the business model. So we said, instead of taking a percentage of people buying someone a coffee, we will charge brands a percentage of their marketing campaign with us. And so that became our business model. And so now we changed all of this and we derived what are the right metrics to measure from this radical strategy. And so there was one main metric that we measured, aside from many others, by the way, instead of just measuring, you know, things like daily average users and time spent, et cetera, the main metric we measured was what percentage of people who were learning to gift a free coffee, how many of them were now buying a coffee for someone? And the answer to this was initially it was 0%. Now it was 27% because the whole feature, the main feature in our whole design was we would give people two coffees, one that they could consume, the other that they must gift. So people were learning to gift a coffee and then they were now spending their money. So using this whole radical product thinking approach, of a clear vision, translating it into an RDCL strategy, we completely changed how the app worked by thinking about the pain points and the solution, how we make this come alive, and basically, you know, changed metrics and, and how it worked. So that's a real world example. And I'll cover one last thing which you asked, which is how do you bring this into your organization? Because many people listening might be saying, Look, you're talking about a startup where the founder can say, this is what we're going to do, people. This just get with the program here. So what if you're an individual contributor? What can you do instead, right? Of course, change is easier top down. So if you're a leader, by all means, start using vision strategy. Use this to decide your priorities in vision versus survival. But here's the reality. Even if you're an individual contributor, don't underestimate your power to be able to use all of these elements. Think of these as communication tools, because as you start to use this, you create alignment in your team. You create alignment as you speak with stakeholders so that you can spread your influence and start to get people to think like you do. 
you know, and so for example, what I do is, you know, if you're an individual contributor and you cannot go challenge the vision of the company, start by using vision versus survival and start by talking about, you know, where features fit on this vision versus survival. And that kind of, you know, if you're talking to a stakeholder and you say, I really think we should not do this because this is vision debt. This is where it falls. It's bad for the vision. It's good for survival. But this is how we are going to start to catch obsessive sales disorder. As you start to talk about vision versus survival, it begs this next question. Well, are we aligned on the vision? What is the vision, by the way? And so that leads you to talking about how you define the vision. Take a few minutes to write out this vision statement and this radical product thinking format and fill out this fill in the blanks format for yourself. So you build a vision for yourself and then you can share it with your team and get feedback and get buy-in. And then it begs this question, what is survival? But by taking this grassroots level approach, you start to take on a facilitative approach and you're getting people to think like you. And therein, you can take on power as a product leader and level up. Hey, if you're enjoying this Product People podcast, check out our weekly live streams on LinkedIn and YouTube. Back to the episode. Amazing. Thank you for sharing this. And I want to dive into a question that has been trending and gaining more consideration recently. How should people think about ethics in product management? Thank you for asking this. And this is, I think, such an important question, especially in our time now. I think what very important way of thinking about our power in building products is to realize that our role as a product person is very much like that of a doctor. What happens when a doctor prescribes medicine is a doctor says, I see you, the patient, sick with something, and here is a medicine I'm going to prescribe for you, uh, and that'll make you better. But a doctor doesn't then say, oh, you know, what happens to you after you take the medicine? You know, good luck and Godspeed. I mean, they do take responsibility for that patient's well-being. And therein lies the Hippocratic oath, right, of not doing harm. Now let's look at the role of a product person. We say, I see you, the user, you have a problem. You're, you have some sickness, right? It's a problem that you have. And I am prescribing my product to you to make that better. And so we can't then now say, well, how you use that product, if you use it for good or bad, that's your problem. And if my product is causing bad in the world, that's not my issue. We cannot say that, right? We have to look at the Hippocratic Oath of product and say, I shouldn't be doing harm to society through my product. And so one of the things I talk about in the book, part three of the book, that is, it's dedicated to this concept of digital pollution that we create through our products. You know, through our products, every time we build hooks into our product and we try to hijack people's attention, that is a form of digital pollution that I just wrote about on LinkedIn recently. You know, when we hijack people's attention, it means that they have less time to absorb nuance. And society thrives on nuance. Think about the last time a political leader said, I don't do nuance. That was George Bush. And that's how the Iraq <laughs> war started, right? I mean, we need nuance in society, people. And so like every time we think about hijacking attention through our products, we have to realize that that is eroding this fabric of society. You know, every time we create products that increase inequality or increase polarization in society, that's another form of digital pollution. Every time we erode privacy, 
all of these, you know, erode democracy when we create more inequality, for example. So these are things that we need to be very cognizant of because we have power when we build products and we have to embrace responsibility and think very systematically about what is the change we want to bring to the world. And every time there are leaders who create change in the world without thinking about what they really want to do. Like, let's look at examples. Facebook had this vision of being open and connected. But what does open and connected actually mean? That was not clear. Sam Altman, if you look at his vision in the most recent podcast, you know, he talks about, oh, his vision is, yeah, people will be employed in the future. Every, everybody will be much, much, you know, better off compared to today in ways that we can't even imagine. Well, that's not a vision. That's, you know, better off in ways like, and oh, yes, there'll be harms, but we'll be able to figure it out. That's not a vision. We have to have clarity in terms of what exactly is the change you want to bring and how are you bringing this about. And without that, we create technologies that are not designed for society. And I think we should be held more responsibly to what we're doing. I'm thinking about us as in product managers, but also with the work we do at Product People with the interim work, we look at how the general consulting space is faring. And there was this larger scandal, which you probably saw with Purdue, with one of the largest consulting firms in the world, ended up being fined for this, aside from having a huge reputation loss for participating to the opioid crisis by yes. helping this pharma teach doctors how to get more of these opioids reimbursed and amp up the doses because they were reimbursed more by the health insurance. So, so it was the whole setup was anti-patients as yeah. people build up tolerance and then the doctors and the pharma company got a bigger payout for prescribing higher and higher doses that led to lots of people die, aside from many developing addiction to it. So it's just such a, a departure from doing good for the general public. And this is something we also thought about at Product People, as we have a few team members that are heavily against gambling. So we just defined in our non-client profiles, so far contains gambling companies. Whenever we had that, people were like, no, we can work with other types. Like we, we don't mind that the client is difficult or if it's something boring, but no gambling, please. It, it just it does more harm to people than good. And it generally tends to affect minorities or people who have already difficult economic situation. So I agree with that. And at some point said, fine, then we, we just assume that we won't have this percentage of customers and there will be, of course, tons of other agencies who need work and we get them. I love that. I love that. That's just so beautiful. I think that's such a vision-driven approach, right? And what you just talked about, that was an example of investing in the vision because when you decline customers who are in that gambling sector, you know, that maybe doesn't bring in revenues in the short term, but hey, it's really a good vision fit for how you've defined the vision for product people. And so that's investing in the vision. And I think that makes for a good product. And the way you're talking about it, right, it's the whole mindset of applying product thinking to product people. Thank you. I was also initially conscious about this because I thought it will uh, limit our total addressable market, but it ended up being quite fine as we do good work and anyway, we have some amount of more demand than we can fill in. So that turned out 
for the better, but it yeah. was a bit scary in the beginning, right? It's just you are limiting yourself from what you could do on the um, hypothesis that there's going to be enough demand for it. Th then the last question would be, where do you see the field of product management in the next 10 years, even five years? Oh, that's a really interesting one that I'm not asked all that often. I feel like here's, here's the main skill set that is going to be important over time. I think right now, what is really popular in terms of product management and where a lot of the focus lies is all the tactics in product management. So what I mean by that is, you know, it's a lot of the tactics around, you know, how can we do agile better? How do we create roadmaps better? And like, you know, it's, it's really a very strong tactical focus, including product ops, et cetera. I think what really distinguishes product people, the great ones from the good ones, are the people who can build a clear vision for their product and take ownership of that vision and strategy. What has happened in terms of the overall trend that I see in industry and in leadership in companies is there's this perception that a good leader is someone who is this visionary. They have a vision and everyone else is just following, right? And as people think of Elon Musk as a good leader and someone like a Sam Altman. And that, I think, is so problematic because the reality is, you know, a good product isn't built because one leader has a vision. It's because every person is able to translate that vision into what it means for them and their work and how it translates into the product. So to give you an example from the moon landing, and I talk about this in the book, Margaret Hamilton was the one who invented the word software engineering. At the time, software engineering did not exist as a discipline. Yeah, she and doesn't get as much credit as she should for it. Exactly, exactly. It seems such a male-dominated field now. But you know, Yes, John F. Kennedy had this vision of putting man on the moon, but really what landed man on the moon was every team's vision for how they were going to build their component, including Margaret Hamilton's vision that software had to recover from every possible error and be able to be stable, right? And, and not default. Okay, so how does this relate to product people? What needs to change in the next five to 10 years is our picture of what makes a visionary. It's not about one person having this vision. It's every product person being able to take ownership of their vision and strategy and bring the whole organization, bring their team with them on the journey. And so the people who are going to be really distinguished themselves are the people who are going to build this ability to build clarity of vision and strategy, how that translates into priorities and how do you measure success. And I think the market is getting crowded with so many products that unless you have this clarity in your vision and strategy and why are you building this product? Like, what is the problem? And with the status quo, why does it absolutely need to be solved? Increasingly, you'll just be working on noise in the market. And so those skills are going to be increasingly important in the next five to 10 years. A hundred percent. Very happy for you joining us, Radhika. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for listening to this Product People podcast. If you found it useful, please subscribe and consider giving us a rating. For more info, visit getproductpeople.com and see you next time.